Welcome to 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am a senior fellow and the deputy director in the Americas program at CSIS. Mexican, but government. are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. This week, we're joined by Camila Moraine, the head of the Trinidad and Tobago office of the Pan American Development Foundation. She specializes in community-driven development and community resilience building. Camila has worked in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Belize, Suriname, and now with Venezuelan migrants in Trinidad and Tobago. In addition, she has done extensive work on vulnerable populations in the Sahel, East, Central, and West Africa. In this episode, we will discuss how the appropriate technologies can contribute to disaster risk reduction. Thank you for joining us today, Camila. Thank you for having me, Margarita. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Camila, I think I did an okay job with the introduction, but our listeners would like to hear more about you and your background. Tell us about um, community-driven development and how did you go about specializing in this area? I think I went about specializing in this area by accident. <laughs> it was not my intention at all. I didn't start off thinking, oh my God, I'm going to start working in community-driven development. But as I started and became more involved in my community work, making sure that communities were in control of the resources and decision-making about those resources and ensuring that they had a say in the direction that projects and programs were taking to varying degrees became more and more important to me. And because of this work, my work with them particularly, and the evolution actually of the sector it just so happened that community-driven development became a much more prominent element in development work when working with these smaller groups of communities. Tell us a little bit about your current role with the Pan American Development Foundation with the PADF. And let's connect the dots to how this role is um, connected to disaster risk reduction and relief. Well, Currently, my role in the Pan American Development Foundation is one in which I am responsible for the oversight of the migration element of the portfolio in country. And it's really actually quite important and interesting to understand how disaster relief, disaster risk response, disaster risk reduction, and migration sort of interlock. They have a nexus. And for us in particular, people on the move who are being displaced forcibly from their countries, they have certain needs that emerge while they're along their journey, right? They've already been displaced, so they are themselves somehow subject to the effects of this displacement and victims of a kind of human-made disaster in and of itself. But along that route, they become vulnerable and susceptible to many different types of forces that intervene along their journey. And this makes them more susceptible. In addition to which, when they cross borders, they may meet situations with which they are unfamiliar on the other side of that border. And policy decisions, as well as the way in which they are welcomed, 
can in fact put things out of skew a bit where they are located. And this can be something that would either exacerbate a disaster or lead to a disaster. So we do have to do a lot of planning, contingency planning, as well as a lot of scenario building and planning in anticipation of and in the hopes of mitigating the effects of any kind of disaster that can befall this population. Because migrants are often on the outside of what would be the formal system that exists within an institution or in a country, they're often more vulnerable to a disaster. So when migrants are in a country and a hurricane hits, or they're in a country and there is some kind of earthquake or other type of rapid onset disaster, they are the ones who will be feeling this impact most. The impact on them will be disproportionate because they are outside of the formal system and they generally do not have the same rights as citizens do to access assistance and so forth. Let's shift gears a little bit and focus on disaster risk reduction and relief and its implications. Many disasters have long-term consequences that go beyond the immediate destruction cost. Our research shows that between uh, 1970 and 2019, disasters in Latin America and the Caribbean impacted almost 300 million people, killed more than half a million people, and had an estimated cost in the region close to half a trillion dollars. In that context, Camila, how can countries, how can nations better prepare for these inevitable disasters? I think, first of all, severe natural disasters, which include earthquakes, hurricanes, and so on in this region, are unavoidable, but the impact of these can be mitigated. And countries in the Caribbean have invested considerable amounts of money and effort in people, in skilling them up, and in disaster preparedness plans and resilience efforts in an attempt to mitigate and reduce the impacts of disasters when they do occur. Across the regions, I think that countries are working assiduously to improve their people's preparedness, to improve national disaster coordination and response capacity. These efforts are not limited to, but they do include the following. Training of emergency responders, for one an investment in emergency management and early warning systems for both rapid and slow onset events, significant investments in infrastructure. And these are things that countries in the Caribbean and Latin America have been doing consistently, at least over the past two or three decades. What is the role of governments, civil society, private sector in this context? So governments, of course, they have the responsibility to not just provide and guide the response, but to ensure that their citizens are able to benefit from said response, you know, and they are responsible for the overall governance of the response and the coordination of the response. Other actors in that response in a country setting take the lead of the state. Civil society actors and private sector actors, their role is primarily 
to support governments in this response and also to ensure that services can be provided to affected populations in an efficient way, optimizing all of the resources that they have at their disposal, which usually involves actually very considerable logistical know-how and technology, as well as you know efficient procedures and mechanisms that allow for assistance to get to certain populations in a much more quicker manner than through the normal bureaucratic pathways that are available through a government-led response. So they work in complementarity with each other. And specifically, how can digital communication best help disaster risk reduction and relief? How can countries that lack digital infrastructure use the appropriate technology to reduce disaster risk? Margarita, from, from my experience, countries have been in this region using technology for a while now, and they have been using the technology to model scenarios in anticipation of disasters. So they have analyzed how the environment will react and how people will be impacted should a disaster arrive. And they're using this information in order to inform their legislation and their policy with respect to town and city planning, land use and settlement policies. And this has been particularly true of the Caribbean countries. And in addition to to this, we have also seen, for instance, where technology has been deployed by organizations who want to respond rapidly to a disaster incident, and primarily in the form of cash assistance, making the funds available to people who may not be tapped into a formal financial banking service or network. And this is something that has become widespread throughout the sector. It is well known now that if you have a mobile phone and you don't have access to a bank, one of the ways in which you can receive funding or resources or transfer resources directly to an affected person is by the use of a cash transfer using a mobile phone operator as the person or the entity to connect the person to the resource. I also have been you know, made aware of other things, for example, the fact that response operators themselves, uh, such as the Red Cross or PADF, we use technology to optimize our supply chain and facilitate the huge logistical efforts that go into a major response. And these technologies help us to mainstream approaches They improve warehouse procedures, commodity management, and all of these things are necessary in order to respond effectively and in a timely manner when the destruction is large scale and the disaster was, you know, like something that we saw a few years ago, like in Maria in 2017 or Irma. In a recent CSIS report, we identified three policy recommendations that contribute to attain disaster risk reduction and relief. One was investing in pre-disaster structural measures, especially in coastal cities. 
Uh, second, establishing or strengthening disaster risk reduction institutions to better understand and prepare for residual uh, disaster risk. And third, pursuing Build Back Better initiatives in disaster-prone areas after disaster strikes. From your field experience, Camilla, what is the key in choosing the appropriate technologies to manage risk reduction? And how can we involve the target populations when building, designing, and testing mitigation strategies? So this is a very important question because there have been challenges in the past with respect to the appropriate use of technology. And that by that, I mean that technological solutions have not always matched the interest, the scope, and the capability of the intended user. And these are the people who must ultimately benefit from the use of said technology solution. So when you ask the question about what is key in choosing the appropriate technologies to manage risk reduction, first of all, we need to understand what is the capability of the population that, will, that we intend to use this tool. What is their interest in using this tool? And what is going to be the scope of that specific tool? And how will it be useful for that population? And it's crucial that DRR activities be designed with the users at the heart of the work. Because in a region like ours, which is quite diverse and which is also quite unequal at the same time, these questions are important foundational questions for the design of any digital tool or technological solution. I mean, the World Bank, for instance, estimates that in this region alone, Latin America and the Caribbean, about 560 languages are spoken. And if that is the case, and if we seek to reduce the impact of disasters for all, and not for a select few, we have to learn how to tailor technology to the needs of these people. And one of the key things is, what language are we communicating in and to whom? Consultation is, is really important. And the population must be consulted, not just on the tail end of having created the technology, but they have to determine actually what problem that technology would be built to solve. So they are involved in the conceptualization and development of the solution. They will be involved in the testing and the validating of that same solution. And this has to be the case if the tool is a digital one or if it incorporates any kind of digital component. And I think that I mentioned earlier that we were a very unequal place. Latin America and the Caribbean is one of the regions that is most characterized by high levels of inequality. And these huge disparities impact the way in which people access services and their relationship with institutions, even the most essential service and institutions. So in emergency situations, what this disparity does is that it would leave many people without access to communications and information that would be life-saving, without access to transportation and healthcare and financial services in an emergency. And what we have recognized is that without these vital 
resources. And if we don't understand how these dynamics of inequality work, the technology can further entrench disparities and it will condemn large swathes of the population to hardship and make it even more difficult for them to recover from a disaster. Thank you. That, that's very insightful. Let's talk about vulnerable populations. Though disasters impact all levels of society, they have a greater effect on vulnerable populations. Base includes often women, children, individuals who live in a rural area, the elderly, persons with disabilities. These populations often bear the heaviest burden of dealing with the immediate effects of the disaster and with the subsequent ramifications of the recovery. In your experience, how can these populations be safeguarded against disasters? So I would say that there is really only one simple answer for this, and that is that communities and countries have to plan appropriately for these disasters, knowing that they will likely occur and understanding that they will have to take steps to ensure that the effect of these on vulnerable populations are mitigated. Ample time must be invested in understanding communities and their dynamics prior to a disaster in order to best support them before, during, and after such an event. And following on from this, I think, is the importance of tailoring responses to the specific needs of vulnerable groups. This ensures that they're able to receive the appropriate assistance should a disaster occur. So for instance, when we do these famous assessments in communities and institutions in order to develop our disaster preparedness plans, consideration must be given to characteristics such as age, gender, sexual orientation, the presence or absence of people with disabilities. And I would even go so far as to say we should anticipate that a number of previously able-bodied people may become temporarily or permanently disabled after a disaster, and we should plan in consequence. We should also plan for and invest in the community's strengths, and we should take time to understand what these communities already know about their environments and how they've traditionally coped with such incidents. Because if we do this, the result will be a greater alignment between any given response, even if that response does not include technology, and you know, the safeguarding and protection needs of that particular population. What we will eventually do if we have that kind of engagement is identify and bridge gaps where they are needed and reinforce mechanisms and solidarity networks where they already exist. And I think that is the entire objective of a successful disaster preparedness and mitigation plan. Camila, what lessons have you learned regarding access to technology in your work experience? How do we make technology more accessible? They have gotten better at it, and that is making it more affordable. If you have more affordable technology, then of course it becomes more accessible. But the other thing I think is, that is really important is one of the lessons that I have learned is that 
technology in and of itself is not a solution. The most important thing is understanding what works for that population best. There are many populations within the region that are technology resistant, that are slow adopters of technology, and that cannot afford it or that don't have reliable infrastructure that will allow them to optimize the use of technology that is available to them. And there is an increasing reliance on digital solutions, which depends, for example, on the access to internet. But if you don't have a reliable access to internet, then you, you, know, you will be forced out. You will be excluded from any solution that is being proposed. So I think that special considerations must be given to those segments of the populations who are either likely to be self-excluding or who will be excluded because of the barriers that exist within the system. More so than is it a question of how do we make technology more available? I think that as history has shown us, large swathes of the population will in some way become engaged by and will engage actively with technologies that are out there. But the question is, what do we do and how do we plan for those people that remain on the fringes of those, those movements? That's an excellent point, truly an excellent point. Earlier in the podcast, you discussed how disasters impact migration and gave us a little bit of of information about your experience working with Venezuelan migrants. Any additional insights from your experience uh, working in Trinidad and Tobago with Venezuelan migrants that you would like to share? Well, specific to this topic about disaster reduction and and how also digital tools can be used, I have to say that in Trinidad and Tobago, one of the most prolific and eye-opening things is how social media has been used as a platform to communicate, share, and disseminate information among migrant people and within these communities. So our organizations and organizations who do similar work, we are really confronted with now how do we participate constructively and tailor our responses to the increasing presence of migrant people on various platforms and how do we optimize their use of the technology to inform our programs and make it so that our programs really meet their needs. And so one of the things that I'd like to say is that the incredibly interconnected nature of the information ecosystem has made it possible for people to share and access information and services and tap into resources faster than it was possible to do prior. People are also able to do this while they're on the move. So as PADF, we started to monitor this information and interpret it and try to adapt to migrants' needs in consequence. I don't know if you've seen images on streets and along major routes where migrants travel of, you know, supply stops, you know, places where people go to get water, get some food, have some medical treatment if they need it. But more importantly, get any information that they may need for their onward journey, you know, like information about the conditions across the border and so on and so forth. 
And increasingly, organizations like ours are able to map these routes and establish services that are tailored to, to the needs of migrants. And this is because of digitization and digitalization processes. Populations that have like little or no access to formal banking services, but they have access to a smartphone. They're able to have cash transfers while they're on the move. And they're also able to communicate with each other about conditions in their final destination, about conditions in, in transit countries. And the flow of information and the delivery of services are, I think, far easier and they reach a far greater number of people. However, they can become extremely chaotic and disorganized. So we do have to pay more attention to this trend and look at how we can optimize our response based on what, what the data is now telling us. I think that an interesting thing as well with migrant populations is that the data is itinerant, just like the person who's migrating and it's accumulated all along the journey. So I'm, it might be a little bit pretentious to say, but there's some element of historicity there and the data can be authenticated and we can use it to predict trends, to propose solutions to emerging problems. And that doesn't mean that there aren't any challenges, ethical or otherwise, on how this data is collected, stored and used. But it certainly presents us with an opportunity to enhance the response to migrants and refugees. And this is an opportunity that wasn't previously available to organizations like ours, but now data is one of the key catalysts in shifting the operational paradigm. And it's something that we are looking closely into. Camilla, you've given us a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us at 35 West. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>